0: Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 923 FM, and the KTAR News app. You know, one of the biggest topics for me, one of the most important things for me, are for young people to get an education and have a start and a chance at success in life. I was very fortunate at 18 years old to enter the trades. Now, I didn't go to a trade school. I went to schools after I got into the trade. When I realized that I was able to make a good living doing something with my hands and my brain, it clicked for me at 18 years old but it was all luck in my case there was no forethought there was no decision-making process which is one of the reasons why i am such a fan of what are called cteds career technical education districts one of them is evit the east valley institute of technology i've gotten to know the people on the board and the superintendent and the work that they do touring their campus meeting the people there and seeing their success rate has been incredible in what they are doing at EVIT. And they are now moving forward with something to help foster kids. It's called Hope Tech. In order to talk about this and give us more information is the superintendent, Dr. Chad Wilson. Uh, Chad, let's talk about this. What's going on?
1: Well, good morning, Mr. Broomhead. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, You know, we're really fortunate at EVIT to be able to look at challenges as, as opportunities needing creative solutions. And we believe CTE can change lives. And when we started looking at some of the subgroups that are most disadvantaged in the state, the top of that is the foster youth. Uh, you know, foster youth are, are, for so many different reasons, um, are challenged to finish high school. There's only 33% of foster youth finish high school or finish high school on time. And we said that we can do better than that. We believe that CTE can help do better for them the challenge became a safe place to live. And as foster youth age to the system, what we realized is that they were more concerned with where they were gonna lay their head down at night and feel safe and secure than career planning. And so because we look at uh, challenges as opportunities for creative solutions, we sought out a solution that helped us leverage, we believe, an opportunity for aging out foster youth in which aging out foster youth can come live with us at Hope Tech, um, have a safe place to live, support, Um, have wraparound services, but also have the opportunity to participate in our CTE programming, which we believe those pieces put together really truly does have the potential to change their lives.
0: And one of the things about even that people need to know is that, yes, you do have high school students in the East Valley that come in during the day, but you have an adult ed program as well, where adults can come in and they can actually learn a skill set. And that's what we're talking about here, right?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, our our, our base is, is serving the high schools in the East Valley, but we do have an adult program, uh, an adult certificate program, in which adults who want to come in and upskill or uptrain can do so. Uh, we're also starting an associate degree opportunity, and we just began our first associate degree in a surgical technologies, with the hope of growing uh, that program as well over the next uh, two to three months so that we can continue to lean in and look for solutions uh, to help those that, that that are in search of a solution. And we know that there are many adults who, for whatever reason in their life, either need upskill or up training or um, have not had the ability to participate in post-secondary learning the way they want to. And we believe that that we have a solution to that and that through our adult education, whether it be the certification programs or the associate degree, we think we can lean in and help solve some of those challenges that exist in our state as well.
0: So for the foster kids, how many how many of these young people are you going to be able to have at a time? And how big could this program grow? Because I know that not only is this happening here, but you have also are a model that the rest of the country may be looking at doing this.
1: Yeah, so the, the facility that, that we're building is a 64-bed facility. Um, uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, we think that's that's argu- potentially the largest facility of its kind in the country. Um, we will start next July or in July with um, 16. And the reason why we're starting off with 16 versus 64 is that it's really important to us that we do it the right way. Um, These students that live with us deserve it. You know, I said at the very beginning that we believe that we change lives by loving our students and serving our communities, and so we want to get it right. So the first year out, we're going to start with 16 and make sure that we really understand the best way to service them and the best way to shepherd them into a better future. And then once we figure that out, then we'll grow into the 64, and it really is our hope that this becomes a model that can get replicated um, because we do think that there are well-intended uh, organizations, state agencies who have all tried to, to lean into the foster youth space, um, but there's still a gap that's missing. And we believe the gap is, is a safe place to live and a quality CTE program that gives them the leg up. And what we find exciting about it too is that not only do we have the potential we to change the life of the foster student, but we believe this is a potentially a systemic change. We know as educators that if we change the life of a parent, we're probably also changing the life of a child. And so if we change the trajectory of the foster youth, though we also change the trajectory of their kids and their kids' kids, well, that's the kind of systemic change, I think, that really begins to move the, to move the needle for a group of individuals that desperately need it, but or a state uh, that is in need of the needle being moved.
0: So when you look at this program and the way it lays out, what are some of the, because what you do at EVIT, and because I've been there, I see some of the success of what's happening. By the way, people that don't know this, I'm going to say it now, that you have a broadcasting program and your your radio station at EVIT has been named the best high school radio station in the entire country. So it's not just that you offer things, you offer high quality certificates and you have some of the highest quality instructors out there.
1: Absolutely, we do. I mean, one of the things we lean into is that, you know, what we expect for our students that attend our campuses is the same thing we expect for our own children. And so if we're going to have a radio program, I want my kids to be in a radio radio program that's second to none. Well, if I would want that for my kids, then everybody's kids deserve that same opportunity. And we replicate that mindset in all of our programs. Um, In order to do that, we have to attract and retain exceptional staff. And that's difficult, to be honest with you, because we compete with the private sector For many of our staff positions but to your point mr broomhead we have a range of programs that from radio broadcast journalism cna lpn to welding we have over 50 different programs all with industry certifications they give the students or the adults to complete the program the currency they need to go pursue a career that provides them an opportunity to to really have a livable wage provide for their family and take a step towards that american dream
0: Dr. Chad Wilson is joining us as superintendent of the East Valley Institute of Technology. One of the other statistics about EVIT that I think is amazing is proof of what I've said before. Had I understood what some of the core classes in high school were going to mean in my life, I would have taken high school a lot more seriously because when I saw the practical application of how algebra affects my trade as an electrician, how geometry affected my trade as an electrician, I may have taken it much more seriously. And you see that at EVIT with your graduation rate. So they complete their certificates. But you have such a high level of high school graduates. A lot of that, I think, is because of what happens. And you think that's going to happen with these foster kids as well?
1: Um, That's our hope and our belief, uh, Mr. Broomhabib. And you're right. I think that oftentimes learners don't see the value in learning until it matters to them. And we talk all the time about building, you know, the opportunity for students to have a passion and a purpose, and that will lead to a paycheck. And it's our belief that if you get a student or an adult in the right program, that passion will give them the opportunity to learn, which will lead to the paycheck. I was talking to a construction student a couple weeks ago, and and he was talking about how um, he really struggles in math at his home high school, but he's excelling in the construction class. And so to your point, the amount of algebra and geometry that are in construction is amazing. So it wasn't that this individual couldn't do math. It's that the application of math is what made sense. It was the hands-on application, not the simple regurgitation of information. And it's our hope and our belief that if we give these, uh, our foster students, our foster youth, that same opportunity, that they will have the passion and the purpose which will ultimately lead to the paycheck. Um, We're also very committed to providing some of those support services as well. Uh, We know that the young individuals that will live with us have had a difficult Time. And so between counseling and social services and on our campus in downtown Mesa, we partner with Adelante Healthcare. So there's some, you know, doctor, dentist. It's kind of that whole wraparound approach that we believe will change the trajectory, hopefully will change the trajectory of those students that live with us. Well,
0: Chad, I love what you guys are doing. I think this is a fantastic addition to give some of these people that we know that are not getting very good results in the classroom and give them an opportunity at a future. I think it's a terrific idea. If people want to learn more about what EVIT is doing, if they live in the East Valley and their kids or maybe it has adults, their adult ed program, where do they go? How can they learn more about you guys?
1: Uh, so a couple of different ways. They can go to the website. It's, it's www.evit.org edu uh, is our website they can email, email myself cwelson at evit.edu, and i can push that you know i can take them and and, and direct them in the, the best pathway towards the right information i want to thank you too mr broomhead I, you know we've talked a number of times about cte and when we first started talking um i don't know that the narrative across the state was what it is now and i think people across the state are beginning to realize that the work that we do and CTE is really what has built the, the American dream. And not too many people were supporting us and talking about us as much and as early as you have and did. And so it's, I, I thank you very much for not only uh, helping us, but sticking with us.
0: No, it's a pleasure. It really is. I love the work you do. Um, You know, it's right in my wheelhouse. I came from, you know, I didn't have much of an education, but I learned on the job and I went to schools like yours to learn more about my trade once I took it seriously. And I don't know where I would have ended up had it not been for the trade. So I love your support for what these young people are doing. And I look forward to joining you in more things and what's happening in the future. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Mr. Broomhead. All right. That is Chad Wilson. He is the superintendent of East Valley Institute of Technology. Coming up in a moment, we're going to talk about more details about the shooting in Texas and why it's concerning. We'll get to it in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Thanks for being here. Uh, We talked about this um, yesterday. There was a shooting over the weekend in Houston at a mega church, and it was a a woman that opened fire between the ages of 30 and 35. The preliminary information was not very good. And it turns out that this shooter has got a pretty checkered past. Now, some of the headlines of this um, is going to be that this is a transgender woman. So that's going to be a part of the big headline, but it's where it goes a level deeper. She had, um, Uh, Palestine written on the gun But according to neighbors She had been dealing with So he has a long criminal history An immigrant from El Salvador, I believe, but she has a long criminal history and neighbors. This is headline. Texas neighbors said they tried to sound the alarm about the church shooter for months. This is a narrative that we have been watching for a long time with these kind of violent outbursts. I said when I talked about this, I don't know many of the details, but we are going to find out. Chances are we are going to find out that there were some serious issues and signs here. And that's what it turns out to be. Um. The late Monday afternoon, um, they, they held a news conference, some women held a news conference in the driveway of a home to describe what they say they've been enduring and to criticize what they say was officials failure to respond to their reports about the suspect. No one should have died. No one should have been hurt. This should have been handled years ago. And here we are again. This is the president of the Neighborhood Association. Um, they said that they had talked about this with authorities for a long time, that this had been a serious issue that they were dealing with. Now I will tell you, if you look at some of these shooters and what they've done, um, you've got uh, um, Jared Lofner down in Tucson. And that was the horrible shooting of uh, former Congressman Gabrielle Giffords and also many other people. A, a young girl was killed. A judge was shot. Others were shot and killed at this scene. And when they started looking into Jared Loeffner's past, they didn't have to go very far. He had been asked to leave community college because of mental health issues and asked to leave until he got help. Some of his friends and neighbors were very concerned about the deterioration of his mental health. There were people that sat in classrooms with him. There was a girl that said she sat by the door with her purse on her lap during class in case something happened. One of the school shooters, I believe the one in South Florida, Um, when they, uh, when that shooting happened, there were students that said, we knew who it was when it happened. They used to call that kid school shooter, go all the way back to the Virginia tech shooting. And that person that committed that act, that heinous act of murdering people on that campus, he was asked to leave campus. Uh, James Holmes in Colorado, the shooter that went into the movie theater and shot up that movie theater. He was a graduate student. They had an intervention team that was going to check on him and and try to do something to help him. But he had dropped out of the graduate program, so they didn't believe they had the authority to do it anymore. What I'm getting at is many times, many, many, many times, there are signs of serious mental health issues. We can continue to talk about gun control. And as I'm not making this about a defense of guns, this is about what is going to affect the biggest change and have the best possibility to thwart these things before they happen. We are going to have to have conversations about the HIPAA laws. When can you intervene? How do you protect someone for themselves? We know you can't arrest somebody or convict them of a crime they haven't committed. So you have people that are supposed to be on medication. They have a mental health breakdown. They put them at a 72 hour hold in a mental health facility. They medicate them. But once the medication takes effect and they are now back into their, I don't want to use the word normal, but they are back into a state of mind that isn't dangerous. They have to be released. But if they go into that revolving door cycle of not taking their medication and then this happens again, and that happens so many times, if there is this situation happening, who's responsible? You can just have a press conference and say the authorities are responsible. But what you're going to hear from the authorities are there's not much we can do. The laws have got us handcuffed that we can't do anything until something happens. So it's frustrating to everybody across the board. But unless we have started having conversations and it is a constitutional conversation to have somebody arrested for what they might do is something that is absolutely against everything we believe in. So what do you do? This is, but this is the conversation that we should be wrestling with. This is the uncomfortable constitutional conversation about severely, you know, mental health severe mental health issues where people are dangerously mentally ill. Because to say mental illness is terrifying because it's like any other illness. It can be a common cold and it could be a, you know, you could be diagnosed terminally ill and everything in between. And it's no different with mental illness. And to stigmatize mental illness is gonna prevent people from ever uttering the words mental illness because they're gonna be afraid their life is gonna change, they're gonna be suspects. So we have to wade into this carefully. But the idea that we are just going to blow this off and say, The conversation is about guns. No, it isn't. It is about people that are dangerously mentally ill. How do we get them help so they're not a danger to themselves or a danger to other people without violating their constitutional rights? That conversation is gonna go much further into solving this problem or greatly diminishing these attacks than the other conversations we've been having. And this is unfortunately one more case of that happening. Coming up in a moment, should changes be made to the WM Phoenix Open? There are a lot of people saying there should be. We'll talk about it next.
1: You got no know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your
0: The M3F Music Festival is heading to the Steel Indian School Park March 1st and 2nd. 100% of all profits from this music festival go to various charities throughout the valley. Limited tickets are available for purchase. You could win a pair if you head over to the contest page at KTAR.com. Gotta love the gambler. Gotta love the gambler. Oh, I got stories. Uh, Thanks for being here. Uh, the question the table. is about the W.M. Phoenix Open, and I want to preface this. I want to tell you something. I have had the privilege of getting to know a lot of people associated with the Thunderbirds, the Thunderbirds themselves. And I've been privileged to get to know some of them. I've been to the tee-off luncheon. I've been to the Open a number of times, but I've gotten to know the people behind the scenes. And to a person, to a person, the people that put on this golf tournament don't talk about the party. They don't talk about the crowds they talk about the money that they've raised and how much money they give to charity. And I don't want to lose sight of that. This is a party. It is an event. It is something that is a bucket list item for many people. People want to go to world cup. People want to go to a super bowl. People, I got to go to a world series game. Thanks to my friend, George. It's a bucket list item. The WM Phoenix open is a bucket list item for people. And I think it's going to stay that way. So there's nothing that I'm going to say here to to bash that golf tournament or the people that put it on or why they do it. These are all volunteers in the Thunderbirds. These are very successful type A people that come together from all walks of life that spend countless hours to put this tournament on. And then they get in a room and they write checks for millions of dollars to Arizona charities. And I never want to lose sight of that. Does that mean that there should be changes now that happened in this year? Was this year an anomaly? We do understand that people, whenever you serve alcohol, there are going to be people that get out of control. We also understand that there's an atmosphere in places. There are some atmosphere are some places with an atmosphere where outrageous behavior is acceptable, and there are other atmospheres where it's not. Has the atmosphere at the open gotten to a place where people believe it's a free-for-all? If you remember um Las Vegas, Las Vegas had a motto that said, What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And it was a national campaign to let people basically know, come to Vegas and go nuts. Well, it backfired on them in this way, that people were going to Vegas and believed that anything goes, that you could run around and take your tops off if you're women, take your pants off if you're men, that prostitution is legal. And there were some people that took this as a license to act inappropriately. And the police and then the city of Las Vegas came out and basically said to the country, no, it was a crackdown. We are not going to accept that kind of behavior here. If you think you're going to come here and get stupid, falling down, drunk, start fights and be irrational, you're going to jail. And people would say, this is Vegas. And they would say, what, what do you mean? Just, just because it's Vegas, we don't want to see you naked. That, that was that they had to rein that in. Now, Vegas is a fantastic place to go and party. It is a party town. We just saw that with the Super Bowl. What then is the responsibility of the Thunderbirds in reining in what has become in such situ- in whatever happened at this tournament? We've got some audio of a security guard that was on with uh, with uh, with well, what I affectionately call the St. Gato show in the afternoon. And the security guard talked about things getting out of control. I want you to hear a little bit. This is an anonymous security guard that talks about why things got out of control.
1: But I think the crowds, they let too many people in. Mm-hmm. There's too many people to keep an eye on. Plus people were getting in. So whoever was at the front gates just said, heck with it, come on in.
0: So that's one security guard's opinion. I'm not diminishing it, but part of the allure are the huge crowds. What is that limit? What's the crowd limitations of letting people in? They did have general admission tickets. The the open was sold out, in, you know, a, a week before the tournament. Is it the crowds? Is it the behavior? Do they need more people to to police the behavior because it happens. We see crazy people every year. Somebody jumps in the lake. Somebody jumps in a sand trap. It happens all the time. 16 is 16 for a reason. You get booed. The players have embraced this. But if it steps over the line, what do you do to rein it in? The problem I have is the reflection that somehow this reflects badly on the tournament itself, on the people that put the tournament on. I will tell you, I know a lot of, a lot of these people are barons of business. These are people that are very successful and work very hard, and they are very proud of the work that they do and they should be. This tournament benefits so many great charities. So what do you do to send the message to the people that believe bad behavior is acceptable? Well, you have to do, and I imagine what they're going to do next year, because I know what they've always done, or I shouldn't say always, for as long as I've been going to the tournament, when you leave Scottsdale PD, along with others, whether I think a lot of it is DPS and uh, and the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. They have breathalyzers so that people can not get arrested for it, but see what their blood alcohol content is, their BAC level is, as they're leaving the tournament. And it's a warning sign for people not to drive. And so you can get ahead of it where you're not getting in your car and being dangerous. Um, They've done a lot of things in that regard. Are they going to have to up police presence and start ejecting people before they get totally out of hand? I I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm gonna say this in defense of the open. It is a phenomenal event that is an Arizona-centric event And one year of outrageous behavior where things got out of hand, was it the weather? Was it that they had to reallocate people because they had to close parking lots and they didn't have enough people to rein stuff in? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. But what I'm not going to do is I am not going to hammer the Thunderbirds or the people that put on this tournament. For decades, they have been doing this. It is a great party. The players have embraced it. The PGA has embraced it. The Thunderbirds have embraced it. The community has embraced it largest party on grass it is a party it's not just your average golf tournament but if it crosses a line i w- i will tell you that the people that are associated with this golf tournament are very smart people very successful people and they will come up with a way to continue the atmosphere of a great time and rein in the people that ruin it for everyone else everyone else i don't want to blame this on uh the tournament the people that run the tournament If you're an idiot, if you are an adult, if you're 21 years old and you're old enough to drink, you're old enough to rein in your behavior. If you get outrageous, if you get stupid, you should pay a price. And I would imagine that's going to be the message. I don't know this. I don't have any insight, but that would be the message if it were me. Yes, we are serving drinks. Yes, this is meant to be a party and a good time. If you cross the line, you're out. Once that message gets sent, you know how that works and I think they're going to do it. I don't ever want to see this tournament bashed. They do great work for great reasons, and I just hope that whatever happened, they can figure out what it was, and next year, get it reined into a point that people are having a great time and love the party. In a moment, can government regulate harmful speech? Great question. We'll get to it coming up in just a moment. values and strong opinions the Mike Broomhead show KTAR news 92.3 FM and the KTAR news app hey, interesting um, op-ed piece written to the daily caller by ju- from judge Andrew Napolitano uh, can the government regulate harmful speech with harmful in quotation marks um, and he writes this speech uh, this piece Can the government prevent big tech from censoring political and cultural voices on their platforms? Can the government regulate these platforms to compel speech the government wants to hear and to prevent speech it believes may harm innocence? If you believe, as I do, in natural rights, minimal government and that owners of private property can use it as they see fit, the short answer to both questions is no. I'm going to give you an example here. Um, And this has nothing to do with social media. If you remember, I believe it was last year during the Super Bowl fiesta that was going on here because the Super Bowl was here last year. Old Town Scottsdale was used as kind of the grounds where ESPN and other organizations did their broadcast from the big parties in Old Town Scottsdale. Although the game was played out in Glendale, there were parties all across the valley. And there was a very well-known art gallery, the Gilbert Ortega Art Gallery in Scottsdale. Gilbert Ortega was uh, what looked to be um, drunk or whatever, inebriated and was uh, mocking some Native American dancers. And it got, it was put up on video, went up on social media. And what's interesting is that um, right near there is a Native American art gallery. I think the Ortega gallery has a lot of Native American art. And there was a lot of criticism of Mr. Ortega for his, what he said. It was racial slurs and, and mocking Native American culture, which seemed to be completely against everything that they sell in that store. But now a year later, Scottsdale gallery owner won't face charges after racist tirade against native performers. And I read that headline and I thought, you know, there are things that you shouldn't say. And there was nothing he said that he should have said. And I would imagine after that outburst, he probably regretted a lot of it. I don't know him, never met him. Uh, Obviously, I know the gallery. It's been here forever. Uh, kind of a landmark in Old Town. I would imagine there was a lot of regret in what happened after, but how is it illegal? Uh, What you say, again, I've used this as an analogy. I could walk up to a couple at an event that has a baby in a stroller and tell them that their child is the ugliest baby I've ever seen in my life. I can't be arrested for it. Could you imagine if they arrested me and I I was facing charges because I said, your child is ugly? And as a matter of fact, let's go a step further. If one or both of them punched me in the face, they would be arrested. Now, does that mean I should say that? Should I not suffer public ridicule? If I said something like that and somebody overheard me to have somebody say, did you hear what this? loud mouth on the radio said to these people, what a horrible person this is. They ought to fire him immediately. And if my boss has got enough blowback and there were enough sponsors that walked away from this show, there's a fair chance I could lose my job over saying something stupid. That's what you can say versus what you should say. And so in this Can private industry, can private entities do things? Now, if you're saying, well, if you're going to allow one speech, you have to allow the other, that makes sense to me. But how much do we want the government regulating speech? Because if they're on your side now, eventually they're going to be not on your side. That's what I've warned people about for the longest time. If you have a truth detector in the federal government that has a truth office, that they're only going to allow the truth to be spoken. Can you imagine what happens when the other side of the aisle is in power? So I'm going to just use the example of the existing administration. If this administration had a truth czar whose office job was to police the Internet, look for things that aren't truthful and have them taken down. What happens, and there's a very real chance of this happening, if this November Donald Trump gets elected president, And now Donald Trump gets to put whoever he wants in charge of the truth office. And now the person that works for Donald Trump is in charge of policing the Internet and only allowing what they deem to be the truth on places on the website or else you face legal trouble. There's a reason why we have a first amendment. There's a reason why you and I have gotta be diligent in what we find in the truth. There's a lot of things that offend people. Let's be honest, being offended is not against the law. If you don't like what the person is saying, change the channel. If you don't wanna see it, change the channel. If you don't like the way they regulate content, delete your account. That's your recourse. Now, I will tell you that if they're pushing one political agenda over another, I think that's unfair. But how involved do you want the government to be? And that's what Napolitano writes here. The fact that we have a court in Arizona that is contemplating arresting someone and charging them because they said offensive things. And what he said was horrible. I would guess that I don't know him again. I would guess even he would now say that what he said was awful. But to contemplate charges because you say something horrible, I mean, that's scary to me. That is terrifying to me. What if I'm offended by somebody that, you know, I just don't like what you're saying, and I'm offended. Should you be charged? Well, no, I didn't. It's not offensive to me. But when, who gets to decide? It's, it's a great conversation. Great conversation. Coming up. The Senate passes an aid bill for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, but the conversation does not end there because what will happen in the House? What are the implications of all of this? That's going to be the topic of discussion.